Are you tired of feeling emasculated when you want to pursue your crafting hobbies? Do you feel like you're being held back by things like safety features and adjustable heat settings? Well, we have the solution. Tactical DIY, the manliest selection of crafting tools known to man. Tactical DIY took all the coolest features of military-grade equipment, slapped it on hobby-grade crafting tools, and painted it the manliest color out there. Black. Do you want more buckles? Check. Do you want redundant webbing straps? Check. Do you want larger capacity magazines for your fully automatic glue gun? Check. Do you want a customizable rail system with detachable laser sight, rangefinder, and night vision flashlight for your paper cutter? Check. Order now and we'll throw in a complimentary container of glitter in the most tactical color available. Matte black. Tactical DIY accepts a wide variety of payment methods as long as those payments are in cryptocurrency. Tactical DIY is not responsible for the misuse, proper use, or well-supervised use of these products. Do not use these tools indoors, outdoors, while intoxicated, while sober, around men, women, children, pets, or cryptids. Side effects may include splinters, cuts, 6th degree burns, blinding rage, alien abduction, and inflated ego. Also, don't eat the glitter. You've been warned. Tactical DIY yeah! You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, your source for the paranormal, the mysterious, and the strange. Welcome back, goblins! You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, episode 3.3, The Half-Assed Bigfoot. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive, Specifically, Annie K, Kylie H, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. If you too would like to join the Esoteric Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. You can contribute as little as $1 a month, which gets you early access to episodes, $3 a month, which gets you extended episodes, or more, which gets you a shout out by name and a warm tingly feeling that may or may not be that Yeti hairball that you just stepped in. You'd better go outside and hose that off. You don't know where it's been. Donations go to server costs, reading materials, and keeping my blood-to-coffee ratio in equilibrium. That is patreon.com forward slash esotericbookclub. Now, let's get weird. Over the past few months, we've talked about scientific endeavors to analyze genetic material found on asteroids. Last month, Japanese module Hayabusa 2 returned to Earth with collected material from the Ryugu asteroid cluster. Now, NASA's module, the OSIRIS-REx, has communicated back some startling information about its target, the asteroid Bennu. When acquiring its sample material, it was quickly discovered that Bennu was not a solid object. OSIRIS-REx had to quickly fire its thrusters to escape because the surface was, quote, like stepping onto a pit of plastic balls that are popular play areas for kids. That's an unofficial NASA quote, by the way. This isn't the first surprise from Bennu. It seems that when observed from Earth, Bennu looks like a smooth sandy beach. 
but when Osiris arrived, it looked more like it was strewn with rubble and jagged boulders. Even more curious, it appeared that Bennu was ejecting debris in its wake. Now, Osiris was designed to be quite gentle in its extraction technique. Ideally, it would land on the surface and leave a small divot behind where it scooped out its sample. Instead, when its retrieval arm made contact with the asteroid's surface, it left a 26-foot-wide crater. There's a side-by-side -side photograph with this article that shows the asteroid right before Osiris makes contact, and one right afterwards, and the photo just looks like an exploding wall of rock. NASA went on to test how little surface resistance there was on Bennu, and the results came back as basically the amount of pressure it takes to press down the plunger on a French press carafe. So while scientists are eagerly awaiting the samples from Bennu, they have a new mystery to solve. How is this asteroid being held together with such a low gravitational pull while still maintaining its velocity? There's a lot to this mystery that seems counterintuitive. Like always, I will keep you informed of new developments as they arise. Next up, we return to a topic that seems to have captured the attention of a lot of listeners. Artificial intelligence. Blake Lemoen, best known for releasing the Lambda interviews, has posted a new blog posing a new question for consideration. Who should oversee and regulate AI? If we want to go with the status quo, as Lemoen phrases it, then nothing really changes, and AI will mostly be relegated to private enterprise, and those corporations get to decide what to do with it. It would remain private property, and thus owned. Quote, The FANG companies will continue making secret AI technology that influences what people buy, believe, and do. FANG companies, an acronym spelled with two A's, are five prominent tech industries that have the greatest impact on American culture. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Granted, two of those companies go by different names now, so the new acronym should probably be MANA? Still spelled with multiple A's, but I digress. FANG companies use highly specialized learning software to manipulate what people consume, in all definitions of that word. This isn't news, but the proprietary software and algorithms that are being developed behind the scenes is where we start to see the potential for problems. Lambda is a good example. Even if Lambda isn't sentient, it's developed far enough that it's making people question it. If you didn't know ahead of time that you were talking to an algorithm, would you even be able to recognize it? Probably not. That's where regulation comes into play. Fang companies have their fingers in literally everything which means that they can manipulate everything from what song you listen to to what political candidate gets more airtime on your streaming service. While it's not terrible that it's sharing different music with you, what's stopping a company from playing U2 at a disproportionate rate? Or forcefully uploading their newest album onto your device? It doesn't matter if you want it or not. It's there. 
For my younger listeners, yes, this example was a real thing that happened in 2014 with iPods and iPhones. The complete opposite extreme is having an oversight committee that regulates the development and use of AI globally. Lemowin's example is the Turing Police from the Neuromancer series. This fictional police force is named after Alan Turing, who developed a test in the 1950s that determines whether or not AI can be distinguished from human intelligence. The most common use of this in pop culture probably comes from the Blade Runner movies. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down... What? What desert? Doesn't make any difference. What desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. Never seen a turtle. But I understand what you mean. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back, Leon. Do you make up these questions, Mr. Holden? Or do they write them down for you? The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean, I'm not helping? I mean, you're not helping. Why is that, Leon? In this movie, and in the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, a series of questions are asked, and the subject's eyes are monitored for unconscious responses to the situations. The idea is that they are posing hypothetical situations that are meant to elicit an emotional response. It was proposed that replicants, human-appearing mechanical creations, didn't have emotions, so they would imitate them in much the same way that sociopaths do. But their eyes, their eyes would tell the truth. But we have multiple novels and movies that demonstrate this may be a fool's errand, since AI, much like any other organism, would learn, grow, change, and adapt. Of course, the AI that we are currently dealing with is still using text-based algorithms. Lemowin proposes that the solution will probably lie in a hybrid version of the two above scenarios. He was personally involved with the shaping of the General Data Protection Regulation Act, or GDPR for short, which was adopted by the European Union in 2016. Basically, it gives countries the ability to regulate what amount of personal data can be collected by corporations and for what purposes. Unsurprisingly, the United States has no such legislation, which means all of our data is up for grabs to, really, anyone who can pay for it. Anyway, the idea is that there would be an agreed-upon set of standards that would be the baseline for this field of research, and then each country would be able to make adjustments above and beyond those standards if they choose to take a more restrictive stance. I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't implemented soon, but again, the U.S. probably won't adopt any legislation in relation to it. If replicants, or even Terminators, were to be developed anywhere in the world, it would totally be in the United States.
A quick reminder to all hunters in Scamania County, Washington. According to Ordinance 1984-2, Bigfoot is still a protected species. While killing one of these creatures used to be a felony, the 1984 ordinance downgraded it to a misdemeanor, which means that, if convicted, you could be fined up to $1,000 and sentenced to serve up to one year in jail. That's a far cry from five years in federal prison, which is what the original ordinance called for. It turns out that it doesn't take an accident with a barrel of experimental chemicals to give you echolocation. Apparently, you can just learn it in, like, 10 weeks. Results from an experiment were released in 2021 that involved 12 people declared legally blind since birth and 12 sighted people. In this study, they were taught how to locate objects and navigate a series of obstacles by clicking their tongues. Over the course of 20 2-3 hour long sessions, all participants demonstrated improvement. Then came the maze. This maze included T-junctions, U-bends, zigzagging hallways, and obstacles. Participants had to navigate this obstacle course. Well, they had to navigate it sight unseen. For once, this pun was not intended. The results of the final test were pretty amazing. Not only were people able to navigate the maze with minimal incidents, but it also showed that there was no difference in skill level based on age. Younger participants may have finished earlier, but it was simply because they could physically move quicker. Even more astounding, the scientists also brought in expert echolocators who have been using this technique for years, and their results seem to be on par with those who only had 10 weeks of this course. There also seemed to have been little variation between sighted and blind participants meaning that this ability could be mastered by anyone of any age or capability. Earlier this summer, Rhino Records released a remastered version of Ronnie James Dio's album Holy Diver. While this may be one of the most iconic rock albums of the early 80s, Dio's legacy is a bit more widespread. Have you ever been to a rock concert and seen people making a gesture with their hands where their thumb covers their middle and ring fingers and their index and pinky fingers stick up in the air? Commonly known as the devil horns, thank you, satanic panic, this gesture is actually the malocchio, an old Italian hand gesture used to ward off the evil eye. Now Dio is the one commonly credited for it, but he wasn't the first rocker to use it. Though, as frontman for multiple bands, he is the one who popularized it. When Dio was with Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne was known for flashing the peace sign to the crowd. Bassist Geezer Butler wanted to differentiate himself from Ozzy, so he began using the Malocchio, which Dio, also in the band at the time, recognized from his childhood, and he began doing it too. The story, according to the late singer's ex-wife, is that little Ronnie James used to walk with his grandmother to the steel mills in Italy to deliver his grandfather's lunch. He remembered his grandmother using the gesture at various times in their travels. But then he forgot about it. Once he saw Butler doing it, it must have rattled around in his head long enough that he remembered what it was. And so, 
the devil's horns gesture was popularized. Where this gets super entertaining is that in 2017, Kiss rocker Gene Simmons attempted to copyright the gesture, saying that he created it and wanted royalties for its use. He withdrew his copyright submission after two weeks, saying that his hand gesture was really the American Sign Language gesture for I love you, which kind of makes this worse? Like, who tries to copyright something like that? He goes on to say that he began using the gesture when he wanted to showcase the wings on his costume, and he didn't really know what to do with his hands. So he began to make the gesture that he saw in Spider-Man and Doctor Strange comics, which means he stole it from Marvel, and then tried to patent it. Kissed band member Paul Stanley had this to say. Well, you know, Gene elicits some very strong reactions from people. And what he does, he does for the reasons that only he knows. Dio's response sums it all up pretty well. Quote, Gene Simmons will tell you that he invented it. But then again, Gene invented breathing, and shoes, and everything else. No matter who invented it, and frankly it's so old that we will probably never know who invented it, we do know that it was popularized by Ronnie James Dio, all thanks to his superstitious Italian grandmother. About a century ago, a Stone Age graveyard was discovered in Russia. Known as Yuzny Oleni Ostrov, and I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, it held 177 individual burials of all social stations. Some bodies were found unadorned, while others had multiple bone and shell pendants scattered throughout, leading archaeologists to believe that they were sewn into the hems of clothing, or cloaks, which... that's actually pretty cool now that I think about it. Considering the excavation was done so long ago, it was decided to re-examine the bone artifacts just to see what animals were being utilized at the time. The results were startling, to say the least. Sure, they found some bones that they were expecting. Bear, boar, deer. But what they didn't expect to find was human bone. Early analysis even determined that at least two of the pendants were carved from the same human femur. Of the 37 carved bone pendants found, 12 of them were crafted from human remains. Granted, that's also just from the pendants that have been surveyed so far. That number could increase as more of the 37 pendants are analyzed. It is proposed that this finding shows that Stone Age Russians didn't differentiate between human and animal remains for the purpose of decorative material. But I have a different opinion. The fact that so many people were buried in one location shows that they did, in fact, have reverence for deceased humans. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone to the effort of interring their deceased. My proposition is that this group may have used bones from fallen enemies, or someone simply found a few scattered bones in the woods and decided to use them. If you stumbled upon a femur and a few disassociated ribs, it would be extremely difficult to determine if they came from a human or not, especially for someone at the time. And, if your technology still relied on flint and bone, you're going to use whatever you may stumble upon. 
I'm curious to see how many of these pendants are from the same bone. There was also a proposal to see if the bone from any of these pendants matched the DNA of the people that they were buried with. This would show some form of kinship between them, suggesting that the pendants were linked to ancestor worship. That study would require the destruction of such large quantities of bone that scientists are skipping that line of inquiry for now. In the meantime, I'll keep an eye on the progression of this study. Some of you may recognize the name Coyote Peterson. I only vaguely knew that he was a television personality of some sort. Well, he recently announced that he uncovered a large primate skull while hiking in British Columbia. He showed photos and made a big deal about sharing it with the public before they made him take it down. It's unclear who they actually are. What's sad is that even I could look at it and say, that's just a gorilla skull. Jonathan Colby, a science consultant for Nat Geo Explorer, wrote, quote, Transporting primate skulls into the U.S. is illegal, even if you think it's a Bigfoot. Multiple scientists and Bigfoot researchers alike pointed out very quickly that it's not only a gorilla skull, but it's a cast resin replica skull that has been artificially aged. Several people went as far to show side-by-side -side comparisons to commercially available replicas, identifying unique deformities found in common between the two. Even as a publicity stunt, this could land Coyote in hot water. The Canadian Park Service pointed out that it's unlawful to remove any, quote, natural objects from a park without a permit, and that trafficking wildlife, living or dead, from a park is also an offense. In a scenario where the skull could be considered a fossil, laws in British Columbia forbid individuals from collecting vertebrate fossils and requires any, quote, unusual or rare specimens to be reported to the Royal British Columbia Museum, a local museum, or the British Columbia Fossils Management Office. I hope for Peterson's sake that this is all just a hoax, because if it's not, he could be found guilty of breaking multiple national and international laws. And if there's one group that you don't want to screw with, it's the Canadian Park Service. As a side note, while copying the link for the show notes, I saw that LiveScience.com is billing this as Coyote Peterson Primate Skull Fiasco in the website's URL. The 2022 list of the states with the most UFO sightings has finally been released. I'm going to quickly go through the entries 4 through 10 and then talk a bit about the top 3. Without further ado, number 10, Arizona. Number 9, New Mexico. Number 8, Idaho. Number 7, Maine. Number 6, New Hampshire. Number 5, Oregon. Number 4, Vermont. Now, the state with the third most UFO sightings in 2021 was the last frontier. Not to be confused with the final frontier. Number 3 is Alaska which is kind of shocking. Alaska isn't exactly known for its population density, so it's pretty surprising to see that it's this high on the list. Granted, this number is reported sightings per 100,000 citizens, and Alaska weighed in with a hefty 90. 
Number two on the list is Big Sky Country, Montana. This state has been pretty high in the rankings for several years, so it's no surprise that it's reporting an average of 95 sightings per 100,000 people. And finally, with an average of one sighting for every 1,000 citizens, the Evergreen State, Washington. I mean, they're already known for Bigfoot, so why not UFOs, too? West Virginia better watch out or else Washington may come for the title of cryptid capital, too. Speaking of West Virginia, we ranked number 18 on this list with a total of 47 reports for every 100,000 citizens. I imagine this would be higher, but I personally know that a lot of sightings either go unreported or are instead reported to smaller local investigative groups. Anyway, let's see if we can increase our rankings by 2023. Do you remember earlier in the year that I reported a used rocket engine had crashed into the moon and a bunch of different agencies and countries were pointing fingers trying to avoid the blame? Well, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has located the crash site and it's a little odd. It's not a single crater, but a pair of craters side by side. Oddly enough, this may help identify whose space junk it is. Initially, it was thought to have been part of a SpaceX rocket, but JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, looked at the data and stated that the orbit of the SpaceX rocket shouldn't have allowed it to go anywhere near the moon. Looking back, it was discovered that the stray rocket had, in fact, been misidentified. Further investigation determined that it was likely China's Chang'e 5T1 rocket engine back from 2014. China, of course, denied this, saying that that rocket booster had crashed into the ocean shortly after takeoff. It's speculated that China's foreign minister is confusing the Chang'e 5T1 with the Chang'e 5, which did, in fact, crash into the ocean. As for the double crater, astronomer Bill Gray, who was in charge of tracking the orbit and impact, is frankly stumped. It was suggested that if the rocket booster came in at a shallow angle, it could create an impact that appeared to be a double crater. But according to his calculations, Chang'e 5T1 impacted just slightly off of a vertical impact. It was anything but a shallow angle. We will probably have to wait for an in-person investigation on the lunar surface before we have any definitive answers. But based on the evidence that we have so far, yeah, it was China. Have you ever thought about where chickens come from? They're not really as old as you would think, and they haven't been used for food for very long either. Archaeological estimations show that the origin of the domestic chicken likely came from Southeast Asia, specifically from the red jungle fowl, which looks like a tiny, brightly colored chicken. It is speculated that these birds were domesticated as a result of deforestation for the use of rice fields. The jungle fowl liked to eat seeds and nuts, so it makes sense that they would just move in onto an easy source of food. Eventually, the birds were traded as a novelty due to their bright colors, entertaining vocalizations, and their easygoing nature. This was pretty standard for a few thousand years, and then the Roman Empire got a hold of them. 
Suddenly, hard-boiled chicken eggs became a favorite food at gladiator events, and at some point, someone decided to try eating one of these birds. And then it was all downhill from there. What was once an animal used as a novelty suddenly became a food staple. The closest modern equivalent would be if we decided to domesticate and eat peacocks. So once again, blame the Romans. For our final article of the night, we turn to the Sichuan province of China, where a patron at a local restaurant made a rather startling discovery. This small restaurant is situated upon bedrock on the site of an old chicken farm. When the site changed hands, it went from raising chickens to serving chickens, and the land was cleared. The new owners utilized the bedrock as part of the landscaping by simply removing the thin layer of soil that sat on top. Sure, the stone had some interesting formations, but they didn't really think too much of it. They just wanted to get their restaurant up and running. Eventually, one of their customers noticed something peculiar about the shapes in the stone. What the owners originally thought were natural formations were actually footprints of a massive sauropod dinosaur. While the exact species cannot be determined, it has been estimated that the creature was roughly 26 feet long and lived during the Cretaceous period, making those tracks roughly 100 million years old. The tracks were confirmed using a 3D laser scanner and have been fenced off by the owners to prevent customers from damaging them. It seems that the chicken farm actually helped to preserve these tracks. The layer of sediment on top of the stone has insulated them from the elements which would normally cause erosion in this environment. The restaurant has plans to erect a structure over top of the tracks to prevent further degradation. Well, that's all I have for tonight. If you like what you just heard, please leave a review on whatever platform you use, or consider joining the Esoteric Archive. So until next time, remember, stay weird. For anyone wondering about the skit at the beginning of the show, it was in response to an actual ad that popped up on my newsfeed. Tactical baby gear. And yes, it was everything that you would expect. It was all black, lots of straps and buckles, and giant chunky mud tires on the strollers. Someone told me that they actually owned some of their stuff, and apparently it's pretty comfortable, but honestly... The marketing is so ridiculous that I just had to make a parody. <laughs>